Welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. So there you go. I'm John Kane, and uh, hey, it's uh, it's great to be back. Um, I know I owe uh, a bit of an explanation. I mean, some of you who listen to this podcast uh, perhaps listen to my radio show on WBAI in New York and WPFW in Washington, D.C., or catch that show when I put that up as a podcast. But for those of you who didn't and haven't uh, and you haven't received an explanation, um, this show is really going to be kind of about me. I'm going to I want to explain where I've been and why I've been absent and uh, and hopefully try to renew my commitment to doing this this podcast and and this one is different than my radio show this podcast is is really geared towards the native audience and and I specifically talk about native issues so so let me explain on January 23rd I uh, went into the hospital for an upgrade I wanted to get my knee replaced with anticipation of being really busy this this spring and summer uh, and trying to get on the road a little bit more post-COVID and all that stuff, uh, I thought that it was time to get my, uh, my knee fixed. And I did. So I went on, on January 23rd. I got a full knee replacement uh, surgery on my, on my left knee. You know what? And for a week, it seemed pretty good. I mean, I was walking around. I didn't have you know, scarcely any pain. I wasn't even limping. I was walking without a crutch, all that stuff, doing my, my physical therapy and that kind of stuff. And, um, and then things took a bit of a turn. So that's January 23rd. By February 3rd, I could sense that, uh, you know, that my knee wasn't feeling the same as it had been up to that point. By um, that Sunday, and February 3rd is a Friday, by that Sunday, I had a full-blown infection in my, uh, in my, my knee where the sur- surgery was done. Of course, it's a Sunday, and you, know, you can't get a hold of uh, your doctor on a Sunday, so the only alternative is to go into the emergency room. So I, ret- I went to ECMC, the Erie County uh, Medical Center, <clears throat> because that is where I had the surgery done, and that's where my doctors work out of, and I had to go through the emergency room, which that in of itself is uh, is just kind of an incredible experience especially by this time my knee was i was in extreme pain and i wasn't taking any pain medications i had pain medications prescribed but they it appeared that they were upsetting my stomach so i hadn't been taking any pain meds and frankly i didn't really need pain meds because my i wasn't feeling any pain after the surgery not until the uh, until the infection came so i sat in the emergency room, waiting room at uh, ECMC for a little over four hours. I didn't get into an emergency room room until uh, after midnight, so essentially on, on February 6th. Um, one of the doctors on call is a surgical doctor, and, and I had spoken to him before I went in, so he was kind of expecting me. And, and he came in, and first thing, he just looked at my knee and said, man, your knee looks like crap. Uh, and, you know, and here's the difficulty. You know, I don't think you get the greatest um, discharge information, what to look for, you know, how to, how to identify uh, infection. Because one of the things that happens when you get surgery done is you don't bruise up immediately. I mean, obviously they cut you up and they, and they stitch you up and, and that kind of thing. But you don't bruise immediately. 
So when the bruising came in, it masked whether my knee was really turning red or not. You know, so as a, as a, by the time the bruising was fading, it was pretty clear that, that I had a well-inflamed uh, knee. And, and now this has really started to concern me. You know, I'm concerned about the surgery. I hadn't yet really thought about the potential of even losing a leg or, or, or being sicker than that. But uh, I did go into the hospital. The first thing they did, uh, they did give me a, uh, some pain meds to, to manage the, what was pretty excruciating pain at the time. Um, but then they come in with this big needle, I don't know, big long needle, and they, and they stick it into your, into your knee, and they kind of fish it around. It's kind of like when they give you Novocaine, you know how they go in there and they go all these different spots? Well, they do this thing with this needle. And look, if you've got water on the knee, this is not an uncommon thing where they, where they drain the fluid. Well, this wasn't water on the knee. This was them going into the infection and trying to draw out some of the liquid from that infection because my knee was pretty well swollen. So that was really painful. You know, not only the idea that they stick a rather wide, thick needle into your, into your already inflamed and, and painful knee, but then they squeeze the knee. They squeeze it because they're trying to get as much of that juice out of there as possible. And, and they pull out, you know, I don't know, probably six or eight ounces out of this big you know, syringe that they drew that stuff out of. And the whole reason for doing this is they have to identify what is the bacteria. So they take that and they, um, and they create a culture with, with some of that material to, to identify the bacteria. Then they start prepping me for what will be surgery. And surgery didn't happen until probably later on in that afternoon. Um, they did put me on some general antibiotics to try to, you know, you know, try to stem some of it, but they still haven't really identified the bacteria that's causing the infection. Uh, and the other concern is, is whether that infection is now running through my whole bloodstream. So am I septic or sepsis, as they say? Um, and of course, I was. Um, but they do the they do this surgery, which is called clean out surgery, and you know, and they they talk, you know, they use words like flushing out the uh, the surgical in the surgery area and that kind of stuff. Well, it isn't just like you know spraying a hose in there. They literally go in there and cut away all of the all of the tissue that has been damaged by the infection, and and they also took out when you get a knee replacement surgery, they put a you know a, um, a metal piece on the top of your uh, your, your, your tibia and on the bottom of your, your femur, and then they put a plastic piece in the middle, which kind of replaces what your meniscus once was. Well, the first thing they do is they pull that meniscus out. They pull that, that poly uh, disc out because that's a good place for, for infection to, you know, to, to stay and harbor. Um, and then they clean it out. And so they go through that whole process of, of cleaning out the knee, and then they, uh, then they stitch me back up. Uh, they put a drain in there in case there was any drainage coming out, which there wasn't sig any significant drainage. So by now I'm in the hospital and I'm going to be there for well over a week, um, eight days. And it's in, I'm in significant pain and, you know, and they're, they're, they're juicing me up in the IV and, and also giving me uh, hydrocodone pills in between what the, uh, what, what they give me in the IV. Um, but it is, it's really painful, it's really swollen, and they get to the point where they, rec they identify the bacteria and then they start you on an antibiotic specific, uh, that, that specifically takes on this, this, uh, this type of infection. 
And so, so there I was in the hospital for a week on this uh, antibiotic. Uh, with the plan being, once I was no longer septic, which means once my blood cultures that they were running um, to see if there was infection in my bloodstream ran clear, then I could go home. Uh, but in order to go home, they had to install a, a, what they call a pick line. They put it in your, uh, you know, up near the near your shoulder, I guess, uh, between your shoulder and your armpit, and they put that into a vein that goes directly to your heart, and that's where um, they're going to, where I'm going to essentially administer my own antibiotics or have my wife help me do that. Um, so they put that pick line in. Uh, a couple of days before I was discharged, they, they utilized it for, um, you know, for my meds and that kind of stuff. And then I was released and discharged on February 13th, which was a, a Monday. And the way that works is they discharge you with the ability to do your own injections, but with the, um, uh, the help of the, the Visiting Nurses Association. So the, they have their own pharmacy. They would send out all my antibiotics, and a nurse would come. And, uh, and for one thing, once a week, they'd have to change the dressing on the pick line to keep it, you know, absolutely, you know, clean because it is, it's dangerous because it, it has direct access to my heart. Um, so I began what was going to be six weeks of this uh, home um, injection of, my, of this antibiotic. And so, so it went. And... You know, I didn't see dramatic uh, improvement in, in my knee. Uh, the, the redness kind of went away a little bit. Um, the swelling was still there. And the pain diminished, but it, didn't, it certainly didn't go away. Well, I get into a, a month later. You know, so I've already been on this antibiotic for, for over five weeks because I was on it in the hospital and then I was you know, injecting it at home, just shy of my fifth week at home. And I start developing a fever. Uh, three nights in a row, three evenings in a row, once, once at 2 o'clock in the morning, the next time at midnight, and then, the, and then on Tuesday, uh, which was uh, the, the 14th, I guess, of March, I, um, I start not only doing, getting the seizures, but I also notice that I'm getting uh, a chest pain every time I administer the, the antibiotic. And at first I thought it was just kind of a sensation, but it was becoming clear and clear that it was that it was not just uncomfortable, that it was painful. I mean, it wasn't you know, it wasn't a heart attack or anything, but um, but it was it was there, and it was only there during the initial injection. You know, frankly, the the pain would fade away while I was still. This is an injection you have to put in relatively slowly, like over two to five, four minutes. You have to inject it very slowly. Um, but but that pain was there, so I start making phone calls, and this is on. Um, this is on a Tuesday. Um, my visiting nurse, which who comes on Monday, she was already reporting back to the uh, infectious disease guys at uh, at ECMC uh, about experiencing the fever and that kind of stuff. And and he just thought it might might have been just a fever running through because of some of the the stuff that's you know that's going around. Um, but I I do get a hold of my my nurse tells me that I probably should go to the emergency room. And I do put a call into the sur surgical unit, and the doctor on call suggests the same thing. So back to ECMC, back to the waiting room, because now it's after hours. Um, so I, uh, I get in that waiting room. This time I didn't have to stay quite four hours before they got me in, but they did, they did get me in probably just before midnight. And 
Um, and they, they start trying to evaluate. You know, they decide that they're going to um, put a, an IV in my other arm and not use the PICC line at all, just in case the PICC line is the source of perhaps a new infection. And they gave me two injections of the, the antibiotic that I was already on in my, uh, now on my left arm, and I experienced the same chest pain. In fact, each time I was getting those injections, the chest pain were getting a little bit more. Now, I never had a fever again, but they started uh, running some cultures because, again, first thing they got to do, uh, do is determine whether I have an infection running through my bloodstream. And that's going to take 48 to 72 hours. So I'm in there on a Tuesday, um, you know, first, you know, Tuesday at midnight, they, they start the culture. So I know that I'm going to be in there for at least three days. They, um, they put me in the observation unit and they, uh, they, they stop using the antibiotic they've been using. And, you know, the infectious disease guys also determined that my knee was probably still warmer and probably still more inflamed than it should be after being on this antibiotic for, you know, like I said, over almost six weeks. So they changed my antibiotics to a stronger um, and a little bit broader uh, uh, antibiotic that'll, that'll take on not just the infection that was identified that I have, but any other infections that I may have developed. So, and of course, the blood cultures are going to indicate some of that. And so they switched me over. Then they decide to pull the pick line out of my, uh, out of the, my right side. So they, they take that out, seal me up. <laughs> and the plan is that before I can go home, they're going to put another pick line on the other side. And because I am, the plan is for me to go home and continue to administer my antibiotics, the new antibiotic at home uh, for probably another four weeks. And the question on, on that Friday was whether they could coordinate with the Visiting Nurse Association and their, their pharmacy and their availability of a nurse on a Saturday to get there uh, Saturday morning to do my first dosage, show me how this one operates. It's a little bit different. I wasn't sure if they were going to set up a drip IV or whether it was going to be an injectable. Turns out it was very much similar to the, uh, to the way it was, I was doing the previous antibiotics, only this one's got to go in even slower. So they were able to coordinate that. I do get a visiting nurse that, that comes in, uh, one that I've already seen before, and that's on a Saturday. Um, so I start the process again. Now, this isn't really a relapse because even though it appears that I was developing an allergic reaction to the antibiotic, um, overall, it was still probably working on my, uh, on my infection. But this is what I went through. Um, and that's where I am at right now. Now I'm, I'm, I'm home. Well, today I'm in the studio, but, um, I'm, I'm home doing this and, and with this antibiotic, I'm going to have to do it once a day. The other one I had to do it three times a day, you know, so, you know, like, uh, eight in the morning, you know, uh, four in the afternoon and, and mid, then midnight. So this one's once, once a day in the morning. Again, it's a stronger antibiotic. And, but the one thing I will say is that when I went to the hospital, for this complication associated with the antibiotic, I never got an increase in, uh, my, my pain never came back, not, at least not in a significant way to my knee. So I was no longer, it was no longer necessary for me to take the, the narcotic, the, the hydrocodone for the pain because it wasn't that significant. Uh, so that was a good thing. So the pain clearly took a, a, a shift at that point. Uh, and, and today I'm still not taking uh, hydrocodone to, to speak of. So, so that's, that's the, been the experience. 
look, I went into the hospital for an upgrade. I went into the hospital you know, to get this knee surgery because I was trying to improve what was you know, uh, pretty much a bone-on-bone -bone situation on my, uh, on my left knee. My right knee is not far behind it, but I wanted to be more physically fit to do some of this work that I do and to travel and to, and to do speaking engagements. So the infection was a serious setback. The second incident with, with the, the antibiotic causing some complications, which I never did get a, a clear indication on why I was getting the fever. So uh, and that may have also been associated with developing a, um, a, an allergic reaction to the, uh, to the antibiotic. But, you know, if, you, if you've been following, you know, me on Facebook and that kind of stuff, uh, you, you know I posted a few of these things only because I know at some point when you, when you become absent for a while, the rumor mill can spread. And, and that's my apology to you who listen to solely to this Let's Talk Native podcast. Um, I don't think anybody was calling me dead yet, but when you're, when you're gone for two months, um, people start to wonder if, if you're ever going to do another podcast again or if you've just changed directions. I haven't. This is really what I'm committed to. The radio show that I do and put up as a podcast, look, I, I like doing the radio show. And, and frankly, I didn't really miss much of a beat on the radio show so much as I did on the podcast, because the podcast is, to me is a little bit more personal. You know, but when I knew I was going in for the surgery, I put a couple of shows in the can, so I, you know, so I had recorded shows. Um, when I did get home, I was able to get myself to the studio and do a couple of shows. Um, but this past week uh, was, was a bit of an exception. Uh, I wasn't able to even do the radio show. But... I guess my message is, is that, you know, and I hate to sound, you know, make it more dramatic, but, but I am back and I am feeling better and I ex expect the healing process to continue. You know, I know a lot of you have offered thoughts and prayers and that kind of stuff, which, which I appreciate the sentiment. I'm not a big one on prayers, but, uh, but whatever, um, however anybody wants to support somebody going through this. But look, I was... Um, I know there are people who are in far greater peril uh, health-wise than I was. It's not to minimize the dangers of, uh, of an infection, especially one that gets into your bloodstream that can cause, you know, septic shock and that kind of stuff. And, you know, and, and it was. It was a dangerous enough infection that, that my overall health, in fact, my life was probably at some risk. Certainly my, my knee and, and my leg was at, at risk. But I think most of that risk is gone. Now, don't get me wrong. I still have an infection in my knee. This, this late after surgery, you know, so we're talking about January is when I had surgery. At this point in March, I still have an infection in my knee, and I'm hoping this more aggressive antibiotic will, will get rid of it. Now, I do have to say, I, I did get great care at the hospital. I mean, with the exception of the emergency uh, room waiting room, which is always just, you know, that's just a treacherous experience anyway. But, you know, I, I had great nurses. You know, I think the doctors were all diligent. They don't always agree. The infectious disease guys are kind of like, they're the overlords of the hospital. They are the, they are the ones who, who make a lot of uh, determinations, and, and they won't pull any punches on, on whether it's the pick team that puts in those lines or whether it's the, surger, the surgeons who did the surgery in the first place. They're not throwing them under a bus, but they're, but they're, they're also not there to serve to protect them. Their sole mission is to identify the infection, treat the infection, and make the infection go away. And, and I really appreciate that um, concentration that they, that they gave me and the attention they gave me to get that done. Um, 
like I said, I think I am on my way to, to healing. Unfortunately, I'm still not back to where I was before the surgery, but, uh, uh, or certainly that few days after the surgery. Um, you know, the, the big question that people have is, you know, how did I get infected? And that's one of those questions we'll never know. But there's a, there is a strong likelihood that the infection came, or the bacteria that caused the infection came in with the surgery, especially since I didn't necessarily, the, the incision after the initial surgery didn't close very well, which is an indication that perhaps an infection was already starting to impact my healing, although I wasn't feeling it at that point. Um, so th there's really no way of knowing where the infection came from, whether it came in with, this, with, the, with the surgeons, whether because the incision didn't close properly, infection made it in there, or, you know, or whether, you know, frankly, I had infection, you know, just kind of lurking around or that bacteria lurking around my insides at some point. But, uh, but I, you know, they say they only have a 1% infection rate with the, with the surgery. You know, when you talk to infectious disease guys, they have a different opinion because this is what they see. This is what they do all the time. Uh, they're not saying that those numbers are wrong. They're just saying, we don't know what the percentage of surgeries that turn out infections. We see 100% of the infections. And so, so that's where I'm at. Um, obviously, in two months, nothing stops. I mean, all the work that, that I try to you know, apply attention to, um, all of those issues continue. You know, we, we still got Seneca Nation trying to negotiate its, uh, its new gaming compact with, uh, with New York State. We've seen, you know, the, the governor, you know, continue to do things that just seem unreasonable um, as a human being. Uh, I have still maintained an, an active role in the, uh, in the mascot issue. Uh, and I got I to qualify this. I, I am sitting, today I, I am a member of the advisory council to the New York State Department of Education's uh, mascot uh, initiative. Uh, it's not a paid position. No, I didn't get hired by the state. I'm not working for the enemy. But I am a part of an advisory council that is advising NYSED uh, on how to deal with the schools that are trying to get, uh, trying to skate by, trying to slip through loopholes or, or trying to manipulate the rules associated with the state ban that came back back in November. Uh, we've, we've had two meetings and we've already, you know, you know quashed a couple of attempts uh, of schools. The one that comes to mind is Watkins Glen, which uh, most people associate with the racetrack, but they're a small village uh, at the bottom of Seneca Lake in the Finger Lakes area, central New York. They have been calling themselves the Senecas for, you know, 50 years or more. And even as the Senecas had protested their use of their name, um, the, the school district voted last year that they were going to keep the name, but they were going to somehow disassociate themselves with any Native imagery or Native connection. Now, that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense, but what they were claiming they were doing was that, that they were no longer Senecas associated with the Seneca nation or the Seneca people, but they were calling themselves Senecas by virtue of the lake being called Seneca Lake. Of course, that doesn't make any sense. It's kind of an absurd proposition. It's also grammatically incorrect because if you're calling yourself somehow connecting yourself to the, the word Seneca as it applies to the lake, then why would you identify yourself as individual Senecas? But this is part of the work that I did, um, uh, that I'm doing on this, this council. And of course, most of this advisory council are, uh, are, are officials. They're, they're chiefs. They're, you know, they're, they're, uh, you know, some sort of title holders, elected or otherwise, um, or they work for 
They're, they're, they're tribal government employees. I'm the only one that's, that's somewhat independent, and I'm the only one whose who sole job is to be an activist on these issues. So it would stand to reason that, that I oftentimes have a, a, a larger working knowledge about what schools are doing across the state and that kind of stuff. I was very familiar with the Watkins Glen case, and so I was able to um, uh, express my concern with what they were trying to do and I said, after our first meeting where we talked about Watkins Glen, I said, um, responded directly to Watkins Glen and said, no, you got to change the name. You know, our advisory council uh, isn't buying it. And so I saw a, a post on their school website that, uh, that they are going to change the name. So, look, still having impact. <laughs> Ironically, I was in the hospital uh, for the last um, uh, advisory council meeting, and I actually did it from my hospital bed. Look, I'm not trying to, you know, play hero here, but I was just, that's just what happened to be where I was at. I did shut off the video so nobody had to see how scruffy I looked sitting in a hospital bed, but uh, we continue to do this work. And, and, you know, and this is one of many issues that I've talked about on this show and uh, one of many issues that we're going to continue to address on this show. So, you know, I did want to, uh, more than anything else, I wanted to reach out to those of you who listen exclusively to Let's Talk Native. Um, whether you, you catch my radio shows or not. Uh, I will say that if you ever do notice an absence, <laughs> for whatever reason, on Let's Talk Native, do look for my, my Resistance Radio with John Kane show. That also gets put up as a podcast, and you can find it on, your, uh, on pretty much all your favorite podcast platforms. Um, look, as soon as this, this knee heals up and I can become a little bit more mobile, uh, I'm not having to do home injections every day, uh, I do plan to to get out and about and to do more in the communities. In fact, whether I go to New York or Washington, where the where I do those shows, or whether I make the the journey to some of these uh, institutions, uh, I, I'm trying to negotiate the opportunity to speak at some of the HBCUs. I'm also working on a couple of other projects with with a, with a couple of other groups to to really address the issues and and try to raise uh, our voices more. One of the things that, that I'll say, one thing more I'll say about the, um, the advisory council is we are making some of the tough determinations that NYSED is following through on. Now, they are ultimately responsible for their decisions, but they are weighing heavy on, heavily <clears throat> on how we uh, address what some of these schools are trying to do in terms of changing their name, you know, saying that Raiders doesn't, you know, it's, it's meant Red Raiders for, you know, for five decades, and now they're saying, well, we're going to keep the name, but it doesn't mean them anymore or us anymore. So we're, we're addressing a lot of those issues. And, and I bring this up because I've already seen politicians, uh, congressmen and the like, suggest that, that this is an overreach by Kathy Hochul. Now, first off, let me, let me be clear. I'm no fan of Kathy Hochul. She has nothing to do with this process. Uh, the, the current administration that, uh, for the New York State Department of Education was there before Hochul was the, was the governor. So this is an agency whose job it is to deal with education. They are not a political entity, but that's what some politicians try, are trying to say. They're also trying to say this whole idea of getting rid of Native mascots is all part of a, a woke elite left-wing conspiracy to promote their agenda. And it's not. You know, look, this has always been a Native fight. We have, we have always been the one who have, who, who have con expressed our contention for this issue. 
the fact that we've gained some allies in, in the non-native community, black, white, or whomever, is, is a positive thing. In fact, it's a necessary thing because we can't change this. I mean, we need white people in particular because most of these racism issues are, I mean, look, I should say all of them. I mean, racism is a white thing. It's going to take white people to take the necessary steps to, um, to mitigate the effects of racism and to, to somehow wipe it from some of the institutions and embedded in things like, like education of children in, in the media and so, and so much more. So even though we're getting some help, and I certainly got some help when I raised this issue at my hometown in Cambridge, New York, which led to this ban, I'm the one who brought the fight to Cambridge. And this advisory council is playing, playing a prominent role in not only keeping Native people at the center of this battle, but making sure that our voices are the ones that, that carry the most weight in this fight. So uh, I say that because, you know, there may even be some Native people who think that this is just white people pushing this. I don't know. Um, but it's not. This has been, you know, a fight that's been gone on for over 50 years, over 60 years for that matter. And we are, we are starting to gain some traction. The one thing that I will say that's satisfying about this is we are winning this fight. We don't win them all. You know, we, we stay at them. We, we still fight for environment. We still fight for, for land rights and, uh, and land back and, and our autonomy and our sovereignty. We fight for all those things. But you know, sometimes we get incremental um, uh, success in those battles. But in this mascot fight, which really does lie almost as a foundation to how white people view us, because these are predominantly white schools, and whether you attend one of these schools or not, you are aware, you're very aware that, that we are being used as relics of the past for these mascots, for, for, for a lot of these white villages to have, you know, to be amused by it. And it is, by any definition, um, identity theft, but it's more than just taking our identity. It's about redefining who we are, because we aren't those mascots, and we aren't those images on a football helmet or on a gym floor and that kind of thing. We are a living, breathing human, human population who have never given away our identity, even as it's been stolen through residential schools, through other government policies, and through these, uh, these, these predominantly white villages you know, trying to take our images so they can claim some characteristics that they want to represent, even if those characteristics aren't necessarily true, the, the whole warrior violent, virile, masculine, aggressive uh, nature of their representation about what an Indian or a warrior or a redskin is. Look, we're, we're grandfathers, we're fathers, we're mothers, we're, we're sisters, we're, you know, we are people who represent any number of um, jobs and, uh, and careers. And to be pigeonholed into these images that these schools have created and they've created most of them, and stereotype us with those images and teach generation, year after year, decade after decade, teaching children that that's what an Indian is. Because the first thing that we have to confront when we go out on any issue, we've got to confront the ignorance that white people have about, about who we are and the fact that we still even exist. So I get it. Many people say, you know, it was, 
you know, is the mascot thing the highest priority? No, it's, it may not seem like the, the most immediate threat, but you are creating generations of, uh, of young people who go into adulthood with this bias about what a native person is. So that's why we fight this fight. So I want to address that, that issue because it's the one thing that I was able to continue to do while I've been laid up for these last two months. And I also want to assure you, I want to thank you for being listeners. I want to thank you if you've checked back and if you've wondered, if you've questioned where, you know, where I've gone. Of course, if you follow me on Facebook, I've got a Facebook page for Resistance Radio and one for Let's Talk Native. Um, but if you, if you, if you follow, then, then, you, uh, then you probably already know. But I felt like I needed to make a commitment to do this podcast and explain my absence and my return. So, again, I want to thank you for, uh, for, for being a listener and for learning what, what I'm doing here. Now, the whole infection thing, I, I put that out there as a cautionary tale. If there's one thing that, I, that, I've, um, that I've experienced through this is uh, I've gotten a heartfelt um, uh, indication of my own mortality. And we can't take our health for, for granted. We've got to do the right things. And, um, you know, and, you know, fortunately for me, I don't smoke and drink and do all that other stuff that can uh, impede healing. But for whatever reason, I drew the short straw on this one, and I, and I got a significant infection. And um, I'm not saying don't get the surgery. I'll probably still get my other knee done at some point. But um, I'm probably a little more cautious about it. So do what you have to do, both from a Western medicine standpoint and from a holistic medicine standpoint. Keep your health, keep your immunity up. Do as much as you can to, to protect yourselves. And, um, you know, and, and when you find yourself in a situation like I was in, you just got to fight through it, fight through it. So, again, I want to thank you guys for, uh, for listening to the show and for following Let's Talk Native, following the work that I do, um, and know that I'll still be there. So reach out if you have any issues or topics or um, concerns, and uh, I'll be back at it. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native.